Hello, and welcome to another episode of South Asian Stories, where we hear from South Asians around the world and uncover their identities, successes, failures, and most importantly, stories. I'm your host, Samir Desai. In this episode, I chat with Kiran Gandhi. Kiran, who performs as her stage name, Madame Gandhi, is a Los Angeles-based musician, activist, and music industry thinker who is recently listed on Forbes 30 Under 30 class of 2019. She has drummed for MIA, Thievery Corporation, TV on the Radio, Kehlani and Lizzo, and currently DJs, drums, and produces music under her own name. Madame Gandhi holds a bachelor's degree in mathematics and women's studies from Georgetown and an MBA from Harvard. Madame Gandhi is a voting member of the Recording Academy. She has scored original music for Calvin Klein, The New York Times, Adidas, Gap, and Vogue. Her summer merchandise line has been worn by Sophie, TV on the Radio, Jirina DeMarco, Mia Follick, Sudan Archives, Garbage Said, Kelani, Amber Kaufman, Orf the Dirty Projectors, and more. In 2015, she ran the London Marathon Free Bleeding to combat period stigma around the world and sparked a global viral conversation about how we treat menstruation in various cultures. Her 2018 TED Talk, Own Your Voice, about making music that is purposeful and accessible to all people, has been viewed over 200,000 times. She now travels often to perform and speak about modern gender equality and will release her EP, Visions, in fall 2019. Madam Gandhi's mission is to elevate and celebrate the female voice. So in this conversation, we discuss the amazing story of how she toured with MIA as a drummer while getting her MBA at Harvard at the same time, her identity as an Indian American growing up in New York City, as well as the variety of sounds and music and artists that inspired her newest album or EP, Visions. This is one of the most interesting interviews I've ever, ever done. Kiran does it all. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Kiran Gandhi, ex- a.k.a. Madam Gandhi. Kiran, welcome to South Asian Stories. We're so, so excited to have you. Thank you. Me too. So um, as you guys heard in the in the upfront, uh, Kieran is an amazing musician. She's a drummer. She is an activist. She does it all. But I'd love to start way at the beginning, Kieran. Can you talk a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and what was your childhood like? Definitely. I grew up in New York City uh, to, I often say to two fairly traditional Indian parents, but then my parents once heard me describe them that way and they were like what rubbish like we are not that traditional like they were like low-key offended that i said that so i guess the balance would be that my parents were traditional in the sense that they were very focused on you know us being good kids being academic um they were also really focused on us giving back and being very uh globally minded and making sure that we were either volunteering in our communities or um, part of some sort of greater humanitarian purpose when it came to our careers. And then I think they were also um, traditional in the sense that they were pretty strict. Like if we did something wrong, we would get in trouble. You know, we, right. we also spent a lot of family time. Um, dinner was very important. We weren't allowed to miss dinner. Um, and then I would also say with my family that we, uh, you know, we would visit India a lot. We lived there for three years when I was younger, uh, oh, cool. between 97 and 2000 in Mumbai. And uh, we would also spend a lot of time visiting family. So I felt very connected to 
to my like grandparents and aunts and uncles and and that yeah, the, yeah, right, <laughs> right. And and but did I you would f- say the, the area? Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say the area where I felt like they were not so traditional was more in the sense that you know they really encouraged my drumming and they knew that I loved music and my mom was the one who took me to my first concert when I was like eight years old. Um, and that concert was Savage Garden, which was amazing. <laughs> awesome. Um, so I think there was this really fun balance where they wanted us to be good kids. They wanted us to be disciplined. They wanted us to have social skills. But they did really encourage the various things that we naturally showed interest in. That's so cool. And I'd love to talk about how music became part of your life. You said you had your first concert. Tell me, Kieran, what that experience was like for you. Was it like an awakening where like, wow, I really like this stuff? Or what was your first memory of music that really stuck with you? You know, my first memory of music was being in New York City and we were kindergartners and we had the coolest bus driver. His name was Harrison. He was like this funky bus driver. And when we would pull up to pick up each of the kids, he would play classical music on the bus in front of the parents. And then as soon as we would drive away, he would turn it back to the hip hop station. (laughs) So we were all like kindergartners listening to Nas and Lauryn Hill and like getting our 1990s New York City hip hop education, which was very amazing and very important. Um, And sometimes I would rap what I had like memorized in front of my parents and I would get in trouble. They would be like, what is this? Like, where did you learn this? You know, and the fact that I would get in trouble made me love it even more. I was like, oh, my God, why is this bad? You know, like, yeah. this is just somebody else's story. I sort of intuitively understood that there was a disconnect there between the fact that somebody else is just trying to rap and sing their music and the parents are feeling uncomfortable about that. So I think it was that feeling of being uh, exposed to somebody else's walk of life and knowing that for some reason it was illicit. And then I think the second aspect was just musically it was so joyful like i loved listening to like music that made me feel happy whether it was tlc or on vogue or the spice girls um i just remember feeling like music makes me feel spiritually and emotionally better when i listen to it yeah and and so the funny thing funny you say spiritually and emotionally better because my wife has the same feeling with music and she was ecstatic that the that uh, i was talking to you because like she's like oh Kieran is like my spirit animal. That's the exact words she had for me. <laughs> right. Um, I, that's amazing. Do, do you, like, I'd love to know, I, I was watching a couple of, of videos you have posted about, uh, you know, the influence of music. And you said you started with piano and it wasn't really cutting it for you. And that's how, when you got into drums, it was like, oh, this was something yeah, that you felt so- the right fit for. Can you talk about that experience? Definitely. It's such a great question. I think for me, the main thing was that for piano was always taught in this way, like, here's what you have to learn. And then this is the homework. And if you don't deliver it, you know, you've, you've done something wrong. It was it was taught in this very rigid way, you know, and I'm sure a lot of people learn piano in an excellent way. But for some reason, it was just like, here's the song that we're learning this week. And then next week, you have to have learned it. And I feel like I should have been taught, here's the chords, here's how to make your own songs. Oh my God, what an amazing song. That's so awesome. Can you write me another one next week? Like, that's how we should be teaching kids. We should be teaching kids to self-express because they haven't been jaded by the way the world is. So what kids can offer is completely different. 
And that's how I felt when I played the drums. I had this awesome teacher who was like, oh, yeah, make it up. Oh, yeah, let's, like, turn the drum set upside down. Oh, cool. I love how you're interpreting this beat. Let's go with your beat instead of the one that I just taught you. You know, he really had that sort of more open mentality, which was far more appropriate for a creative soul like myself. Yeah. And I love that music is personal. And and the fact that he inspired that in you is, I think, a really cool trait. I um, So going back to the timeline, so you grew up in New York City. I understand you went to Georgetown for mathematics as your major, of course, with other things like women's studies. Uh, you know, coming from a South Asian background, was that the influence of your parents? And I know music was always a part of you, but how did you work through both your creative side and your ag- academic side? Yeah, that's such a good question. My choice to be a math major was 100% influenced by my dad. <laughs> and I'm sure. it was also definitely my South Asian flex, for sure, because I remember being really good at math, even as a high schooler. So I went into Georgetown with all these AP credits. So if I did choose to major in math, I would have to take like way less classes than if I majored in anything else. Right. So I was like, all right, I'm definitely going to major in math. I definitely want to major in political science and government because I thought, you know, maybe I'll go work for Obama's White House or something like that. And and then I also um, minored in women's studies because I, I took a class and I remember feeling like, wow, this is for the first time I've been able to talk about gender in a way that's like very clear and very scientific. And I and I love this. But yes, my choice to do math was definitely inspired and influenced by my father. And I'm glad that he did because it it has helped me throughout my career. Um, but no, I didn't feel like I was able to balance music in a healthy way. I felt like I was just in these random bands with like frat bro kids <laughs> and I didn't really enjoy it. But that was like the only quote unquote like official way that you could be participating in music at Georgetown. It was only until I was a senior and I started sitting in with different bands around D.C. that I found my passion playing congas, playing percussion, playing drums and, and eventually got picked up to play Bonnaroo festival with thievery corporation yes tell us about that story what was that like for you i think for me i was in the right place at the right time i had been hanging out with all of the band the members of the band to tour with thievery and so by the time you know i was playing with them so regularly and they had needed an additional percussionist to fill in for this one show i was the natural pick and it really taught me like i this is something that's more serious for me like i'm not trying to be in a random you know, college band, I want to take this to the next level. And when that experience happened, I knew that I want my day to be in music. I want my night to be in music. This isn't just a hobby for me. This is something that I really enjoy. This is my true passion. Um, Yeah. It's cool. So you did that. And then, um, you know, I was also watching the story of how you bossed it up and got your gig with MIA. Can you tell the audience a little bit about that? Because I think that's an amazing story. Definitely. I remember um, I had been working at Interscope Records right after I graduated um, Georgetown. I had gotten my first job in the music industry because of my um, math degree. You know, I was I was trying to find a job and I remember they were looking for a digital analyst at Interscope Records in Santa Monica in L.A. And uh, and that that ended up being my first job out of school. But after the first two years of doing it, I was like, you know, I need to be honest with myself. I'm not. touring the world drumming which wasn't you know it was my sort of passion that was my goal i'm still somehow behind the desk um you know i'm stoked to be supporting and analyzing for other artists but i'm not the one drumming and that's really the passion so i remember mia was getting ready to put out her next record and 
she um, was in a product marketing meeting. And right after she left the meeting, I remember raising my hands and being like, you know, am I, I could really use a drummer, maybe somebody <laughs> who's Indian, maybe somebody who's young, who's female. Right. And, uh, and a product manager named Diana Cass was really uh, supportive, actually. And she was like, all right, Kieran, you know, send me a video of you drumming. And so I had put together this video, we sent it over, and then MIA ended up responding to me directly over email and was like, this video is awesome, um, we'd love to consider this for the tour, uh, we're not thinking about um, the tour dates just yet, but we'll let you know when we do. What and went through me, your head getting huge. that email? We were like, whoa. I mean, totally, it was a dream, it was a total dream, it was, uh, you know, something that made me feel really seen. I think that was the main thing. When yeah. you're seen by someone who you really admire, you feel like you've arrived. It was just such a big transitional moment where my own confidence just soared through the roof because I was validated by someone who I had admired for so long. Yeah, for sure. And is that when, Kieran, you decided to start performing under your stage name, Madame Gandhi, or was that later? No, that was much later. I remember I uh, actually was had applied for business school at the same time because obviously the MIA thing was something that just happened by chance, by luck. I more intentionally was trying to apply to get my MBA after after working at Interscope because I was like, okay, I either want to make sure that I'm like reaching my next level as a drummer or I want to make sure I'm at least reaching my next level as a music business sort of industry thinker. Right. So I thought if I go get my MBA and I come back to the industry either working on Spotify or YouTube, at least I can have more influence and I can really be pushing and signing artists who at least I think are elevating and celebrating um, the female and feminine voices. So I actually had gotten into business school at the time. I got into Harvard. I moved out to Boston. Then I was doing the MIA tour, but I was still performing just as her drummer and just as Kieran. Man, that's crazy. How did you bounce a Harvard Business School degree and also, you know, doing your music career and drumming at the side? That, you must have had killer time management skills. <laughs> <laughs> I think for me, I felt really focused. I didn't feel this desire to go and socialize with all of the other students all the time. I think for me, I wasn't trying to get a job in consulting. I wasn't trying to get a job in banking. Uh, Harvard kids don't really offer like connections in the music industry necessarily. So sure. I never felt like there were these sort of huge networking events and I never felt the need to go. Now, I loved getting to know my classmates one-on-one -on -one or in like super small dinners, but majority of the socializing was really large group events. Right. And so when you asked me about balancing, it honestly felt easy because it was like mm -hmm. in the daytime, I'm going to my classes in the afternoon. I'm going to do my homework, maybe on the flight over to go and play a show in New York or, or LA or DC or whatever. And then I would come back the next day. Like I remember one week MIA had shows all in Brooklyn and New York and Monday afternoon I flew to New York, played New York Monday night, then flew back in time for class Tuesday morning, then Tuesday night flew to New York, wow. then Wednesday morning flew back to Boston, did my classes. Wednesday night flew back to New York. Like I literally did it every single day and somehow made it through and it was amazing. And I felt like, even though it was difficult, I was like, wow, I made it. I'm literally learning from one of the most prestigious institutions, though, albeit it is the breeding ground of the capitalist patriarchy. Yes. But I am learning. And and in the evening, um, I'm playing, you know, for audiences all around the world. And, and that felt good. 
Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think the main answer to your question is that I felt really focused in my mission and in my purpose. So it didn't feel like I was missing out on anything or that it felt tough to balance. I was so happy just doing those two things. That's so cool. Um, I want to go back to what you said about your mission of elevating and celebrating the female voice. Um, one of the things that um, that was really cool is your story with the London Marathon. Can you talk a little bit about the genesis of that and you know how that how that came to being and the the the, the actual running and then the whole the huge um, effect after that because I think that's important to talk about. That's what, yeah, of course I. You know, it was in my second year of business school after the MIA tour had finished, and I definitely had a big hole of time on my hands. And <laughs> I also remember that just like touring makes you kind of unhealthy and, and nothing too serious. But like, I remember being like, oh man, I want to get fit. Like, I love seeing all these Harvard kids and all these Bostoners just like running and like lifting and working out. And I was really inspired by that. And I was especially inspired by Boston people on the river running when it was like freezing outside. I'm like, this is so raw and like <laughs> badass. I want to be like this. Yeah. Really, I felt like that. You know, it kind of had the same rush in my brain as like touring with MIA on a weekday in between class. To me, that was like the same rush as like going for a run when it's snowing outside. You know, it just had this like badass rawness to it. And so I just took up running. I used to run like three, four times a week and I was, you know, very lenient with myself. I would be like, listen, Kieran, if you can't run even a mile today, just Uber yourself home, you know, whatever it would take me to get me out the door. Right. And I would run and run. And I, I ended up getting ready to be able to run the London Marathon. And a friend of mine invited me to run it with her. So we we got out to the London Marathon at the end of 2015, or sorry, in the middle of 2015, but at the end of my time at business school, I had just graduated. And uh, we were at the start line. And... I remember being like, whoa, I'm about to be on day one of my period. And for anyone listening to the podcast who doesn't have a period, let me tell you what you're not trying to do on day one of your cycle. It's run 26 miles. <laughs> so I remember evaluating my options like, okay, a pad causes chafing. That's going to be uncomfortable. I don't have a menstrual cup on me. Um, I suppose a pad could work, but the truth is that I didn't really want like a half in half out situation while sure. I was trying to run for four and a half hours. I, I, there's no privacy on a marathon course. So I didn't really know what people do, whether they carry an extra one on the way. I don't know. I didn't really feel like any of these products were appropriate for the job that I had to do. And sure. I thought, wow, this is crazy that no one, we don't talk enough about periods for us to even know what to do in these different scenarios. And, and, and the fact that there's not like innovative products to, account for all these different scenarios that that women or people who bleed go through so i decided to just not use any of those products bleed freely and run and i kind of was on some punk rock shit like you know bleeding freely from anywhere trying to run 26 miles is like on the kind of badass level that is very mia inspired for me yeah for sure and, and, and I love how you did it without thinking. Like, it was just a liberation moment where you're like, I'm just going to do this. And then when you finish the race, what happened next? Um, I remember, you know, as I was running, thinking, wow, I'm actually in, like, quite a privileged position to even run this race like this. But millions of women and girls and people who bleed around the world are not in this same position of privilege. Right. And I want to write about this. And I want to write about my story. And I want to parallel it to what's happening globally, the fact that girls drop out of school each month because they don't have products 
that they need to take care of themselves in their cycle yeah. or that the stigma runs so deep that most girls feel so deeply ashamed of what their own yeah. bodies are doing, even though it's the most natural part of the human reproductive cycle. Or the fact that even here in the States, those products have some of the most carcinogenic materials that we're putting in the most sensitive parts of our bodies. Um, you've seen cervical cancer go up in the past 50 years at a rate that didn't exist before these products existed. So mm-hmm. long story short, I wrote about all of these things on a blog post that was just intended for my own community, you know, my own friends and family who know that I'm very passionate about gender equality, gender liberation. I posted it on my blog. A friend of mine who writes for Mike.com, which I think used to be called PolicyMike.com, said, hey, can I republish your story on our identity section? It's such a great story. It's really powerful. And I was like, yeah, of course. Like, go right ahead. And the story went viral on a level that I could never have anticipated in my life. And when you saw it go viral, what was going through your head? You're like, oh, wow. People want to hear this story. This story is resonating with others. What, like, how did you take it from there? I think it was something that really caught me off guard, but I remember just like not sleeping for three, four weeks because <laughs> my inbox and my phone was just flooded with journalists from all around the world saying, oh my gosh, tell us the story, what happened? And I had to really also, like, I never had to tell the story, you know what I mean? Like what, when I did the marathon, like maybe that week I told some friends and I wrote the blog, but like I wasn't well-versed um, as I feel now, years later, about speaking clearly and and intelligently about these different issues. I right. think for me, it, it really um, was a new space for me to step fully into my power, to become well-versed on exactly the issues, to be able to talk about them, you know, just off the top of my head. But one thing that I remember doing was so many different menstrual health organizations had reached out to me in that time. And so I remember feeling like a matchmaker, like I would do my interview on the BBC and then I would link the BBC up or like tell people about three or four menstrual health organizations like in the UK, or then I would go talk to the New York times and then I would link them with like four different incredible organizations that were fighting legislature in New York city itself. So that all the folks who typically weren't getting the press and attention they deserve or their money that they deserve for their good work. were now getting this huge influx of interest. So mm-hmm. it felt very, very powerful and very dynamic um, to talk about something that it seemed the world had wanted to talk about for a long time. Yes, for sure. I think that is so, so inspiring. And I think it's especially inspiring, Kieran, for people in our community, in the South Asian community, because not only is a female empowerment and gender equality something that the world struggles with, I think it, it struggles with at a more succinct basis or more intense basis for our community because it's not something that's talked about a lot and i love that you're a beacon for that not only for all communities but especially for the south asian community i think that's so cool oh definitely and you know what's so interesting to me is that i have an irish grandmother my grandmother is born and raised from ireland she's catholic she married an indian man and they lived in india but of all my indian family everyone was cheering me on everyone loved the story everyone got it they resonated they were proud it was my Irish grandmother who was the one who felt embarrassed, uncomfortable, no would ask us to stop talking about it if she was around. Or she would like email me things that she thought were actually being loving. Things like, okay, Kieran, like we've heard about this enough. Like I recommend that you stop talking about it and move along. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, 
our people would like post the article to my Facebook and we were, she and I were Facebook friends and she would see it and she would just comment things like, um, this is not a way to make noise or things like that, you know, it's yeah. just so interesting. So sometimes even my American friends were like, oh my God, what did your Indian family say? And I was like, my Indian family was fucking on point and understood the need to talk about this issue. And actually growing up, my mom was very normal about things like that. Um, and God bless her for, for being that way. It was my Irish grandmother who, who had an issue. Interesting. That is super interesting. Um, Kieran, I want to also ask you about how you brought this, um, you know, gender equality, fourth wave feminism into your music. Because I know those are two passions of yours. How did you combine them? Because I know a lot of the music and art you create now combines those two passions. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, definitely. I remember when I... When I graduated Harvard and when the story went viral, I, I was at the time looking for jobs at Spotify because that's, that's what I thought I was going to do with my life. And uh, and when the story went viral and I was kind of invited to speak all around the world, people would then say, oh, and can you play us some songs? You know, when I know you're a drummer. And I was like, listen, I don't have my own music. I've only been drumming for other people. And so in the past couple of years, I've really been writing, producing, performing and putting out my own album and my own records. Um, that do talk about multidimensional viewpoints of the female experience, talking about the queer experience, talking about the brown experience, um, and making music that's like uplifting and self-reflective as well. That's not just outwardly critical, but also like inwardly thoughtful and respectful um, of my own personal journey so that other people feel brave enough to step into theirs. Uh, and, and this new record I'm putting out in the fall is very much about that. It's called Visions. It's about looking inward to look outward. Um, and it's it's been really cool to take these ideas and put them into a musical body of work. It feels very full circle. That is so cool. And yes, it does come full circle because from where you started to, you know, now creating this that combines the two, I think is, is really killer. Um, I'd love to talk about visions. You know, it's coming out in, in the fall for someone who like me and a lot of people listening just don't know what the creative process is like. Can you walk us through what it was like to start it? to build the, the the album and like how how it came to be because a lot of people just don't know how the sauce is made how does a album or ep like this come to life i think um i think it's a couple of things i think it's first like knowing the sound that inspires you you know the different artists um have who have inspired me include the free corporation and tv on the radio and uh you know, <laughs> who else? Bella Kuti from Nigeria. Um, DJ Reka. I don't know if you know DJ yes. Reka, but yes. she's huge inspiration to me. And actually, I didn't even mention this, but it's important to say that when I was deciding right at the start of business school whether I was going to go do the MIA tour or go to Harvard, because the dates were really at the same time, she was the one who sat me down in this New York City bar and was like, you need to figure out how to do both. And like, maybe don't tell your parents at the time, but like, <laughs> figure out how to do both and then tell them after the fact that that's what you did. And I was like, cool. All right, I'm going to do that. So yeah. like, shout out to us actually mentoring each other and like putting us on instead of tearing each other down because she really did that for me and it felt really good. Um, but yeah, the process for me was learning how to produce. So that means learning how to use the music software called Ableton where I'm making beats and I'm programming synths and I'm putting out arrangements and then singing on them, you know, or taking time to go to Joshua Tree or to Ojai or to the desert Palm Springs outside of LA and, and writing lyrics and then finding the music that works for them. 
or reaching out to collaborators whose beats I really love. You know, there was this Brazilian trap artist called Ruxel uh, out in, in uh, Rio. And I, I loved his work because he was making all these really dope, like, bile funk electronic trap songs. But they were all, like, fairly sexist. Like, when you translate the lyrics, it's the classic thing of, like, yeah. music that's very aggressive towards women and very, like, uh, objectifying. So I was like, dang, like, I don't want to have to turn up to the sound of my own oppression. Why can't we just write, like, beats that are really dope, but then the music is talk- lyrically talking about something else? So, so my song Top Not Turn Up really is about that. It's about putting your hair up in a bun, getting work done. So that was really the process. You know, it's, it's a mixture. Some songs I'm producing end-to-end, other songs I'm inviting people on to collaborate with me. Um, I'm writing the lyrics and the melody. Most of it I just do out of my studio in L.A. because I love working from home. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, I'm excited for Visions to come out and for you to hear it. Yes. I have a song sure. on there. I have a song on there called Young Indian. Oh, nice. Yes, I will definitely link to that um, um, for, for all the listeners. I'm sure they'll be love to, to, to check it out. Um, I also want to talk the, op- the opposite of, you know, creative inspiration. A lot of people who are creatives, um, me as well, when, when you're working on something and you reach like kind of a block where you can't get past your own mind and, you know, you're just stuck in a rut. How do you deal with that? Because I'm sure at some point you've, you've gone through that where you just don't feel the inspiration. What, ha- what have you done to get through it? Cause I know in your podcast, uh, in not in a, in a video, you talked about the, the influence of meditation and all those things. Does that help or what, what kind of things do you do to get out of a creative rut? I think meditation is very important for me. I do a practice every morning that my mom taught me from Sadhguru. And the reason why I like it is because this is the first time in my life, these past couple of years is the first time in my life that I've ever been in an entrepreneurial setting where no one else is telling me what my timing is. You know, from childhood, I've been a student from childhood. I've been an employee. Mm-hmm. So I've always been in scenarios where I have to report to work at a certain time. I have to report to class at a certain time. When the marathon story went viral and I started producing and performing my own music and traveling the world, it's like, at any given moment, I can wake up and be doing whatever. And I would find some days would go by and I was like, dang, what did I even get done today? What's ha- like, what's happening? <laughs> and so the meditation practice was like a really important moment of my day where I just center myself and say, okay, like what's happening today? What's going on? What do I want to happen today? I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but like sometimes I'll make meetings, appointments and set them up like three weeks before. And in that moment, I was, like, really excited to set up the meeting. And then the day comes, and I'm like, ugh, like, why did I even set this up? Like, I don't even want to go to this. So I have to, like, take a moment to dial back into that and say, wait, I did this for a reason. What was that moment of inspiration? What was I really excited about in that moment when I made this plan? Yeah. Um, Because otherwise, the quality of the meeting and the interaction will suffer anyway. So, like, being, being dialed in does really help. And then in terms of inspiration... Man, I think traveling, I think just like spending time away from people. Usually when I'm by myself, I talk to myself and like that's when I start singing lyrics about how I feel in that moment. I don't know. I, I'm a Pisces, you know, I'm born in February. We have emotions for days, so there's no shortage <laughs> of topics to write about. I'm a Pisces as well. I'm born in March, so I feel you on that one. Wow. I had a feeling actually because when you um, I answered the call, you were so nice about me being late. I was like, you're so sweet right now. It was very generous, very accommodating. <laughs> uh, well, hey, I, I 
that's that's we I, I just felt a connection with you and, and, and I'm glad uh, <laughs> we, we, we share the the same sign so that makes that means a lot um, I want to talk a, a little bit about sacrifice because you know one of the things I think about from my South Asian perspective is you know my parents had to do a lot to get me to where I am and to be have the life I, I live and you know the the blessings that I've had uh, here can you talk about what in your own life, what things you had to sacrifice to get where you are today? Because life is all about trade-offs. What is something okay. that, that you felt that you had to sacrifice to, to be where you are today? That's a great question. Um, huh. The thing is, I, I yeah, I don't know. Uh, our parents did have to sacrifice a lot, and I... I agree with that. And I watch my dad today and my mom today and they definitely like, I love that they're actively making a life for themselves still. Like they're very active in their own communities and in their own work and in their own passion, which I think is like also really healthy for a kid to see because then you don't think like your parents' main job is to raise you. Like <laughs> they have a life and they're busy and they're active. Um, but I think you're right. I think maybe um, our generation's not having kids as young. I think that's like a huge one. Um, I definitely want to have kids at some point. I, I'm 30 right now, and so it's like crazy to actually have to take that conversation a little bit more seriously, even though I still feel like I'm a child right, myself. Right. Um, so it's an interesting one. It is. I, I don't know what I have not sacrificed what I've sacrificed just yet. I don't feel like I've sacrificed anything, to be honest. That's good. That's good. That means that, hey, you have followed something. And I think the perfect example of this is what you said about choosing between doing your tour with MIA and doing Harvard. You said, you know what? Why can't I do both? And, you know, a lot of people mm -hmm. have to choose between their career and their family or their family and uh, their health or their health and their spiritual You're well being. Right. You're right. Um, but I think what I love I is you, you're saying is like, hey, if you find a way to do as many as you can and feel happy and healthy and connected, do it, which I think do is so it. Cool. But I think you make it. Yes. But I, you know what? You raised a really good point is that I think let's say my parents would not have been, you know, supportive of the marathon story or have been supportive of me going out on my own and, and public speaking and uh, producing music for a living. I think, I think I would have spent time bringing them on the journey. Cause I think even I remember to major in or minor in women's studies, I had to like really sit my parents down or especially my dad and be like, this is why I want to major in this topic. And not necessarily because he was sexist, but because he didn't think it was a real major or he didn't <laughs> think it was something, you know, that would help me in my life. Um, he, he, he came around very quick, but I don't, I think there was a little bit of pushback, like, you know, what else is there to minor in? Um, I think, also, when I was about to go work at Interscope Records, it was an internship for the first two months before I turned it into a real paying job with healthcare and all that. And I remember really having to take my parents along the journey and saying, listen, I really think this is going to work out. It's going to work out because I want it to work out. I don't want to be a fucking intern. I want a real job. Like yeah. I'm hungry for it. Yeah. So trust me. It's not like I'm saying, you know, give me a bunch of money and let me party. I'm saying you know, be there for me for two months because that's all I need to turn it into a real job. And I think earning their trust and then I did get the job and, you know, bringing them along the journey, that's really big. I think right. that's really big. People want to be invested in your success. And, and we as Indian kids love our family so much. Like 
not having that connection is really upsetting. So I kind of wanted it all. I was like, no, I want my family and I have a great relationship. I want to feel really supported and I want to do what I want. Yeah. I want to be happy. I love that. And I, and I think to underscore how important that is for people in our generation who are Indian American or, you know, South Asian American who are grown up with the value system of our parents, but also the value system where we've grown up here, you're kind of like torn between the two. And I love how, you know, being open and honest with your intentions and expectations with your family, like, Hey, I want this. I want you guys to be invested in my success, but I will also need to do this for myself. I think is mm-hmm. a beautiful thing and more people, um, you know, need to yeah, hear. Yeah, I think that's my mom. Definitely. I think that's my mom's side. You know, my mom always raised us, my brother and sister and I, with this notion of like, are you happy? You know, mm-hmm. she always really did push us to optimize for our own joy. And I felt like that was extremely important because then it gave me a voice as a kid to even be like, well, this makes me happy, mom. And this is what <laughs> I want to do. And she'd be yeah. like, great. I want to see you happy. And, uh, and then I think my dad, he was definitely more the, the focused guy. You know, he's a tourist. He's a banker. Like, he went to Harvard as, like, a young Indian boy and got in, you know, out of nowhere. Like, he was really this sort of, like, driven. He is this really driven person in a very traditional sense. And my mom is much more on the spiritual side. She's really dialed into, like, health and wellness and, like, are you okay? And are you sleeping well? And are you happy? And do you have friends and things like that? And this balance has always been really good for me. But I think the point that I wanted to make earlier was that, uh, was that my parents didn't make the mistake of trying to raise us like as if we were in India, Mm -hmm. but then moving us to New York. You know, I think it's really unfair and I don't mind being critical of this because I think it is unfair when when families no matter where they are from the world and you know go abroad go to the states go to the uk wherever but then live in a very insular way um according to the values that are from the homeland and i understand you know i understand the need to preserve tradition that's not what i'm criticizing but i think it's unfair to like say we only want to take this aspect of your american upbringing but we want to reject all these other aspects it's just like creates so much inorganic tension that will of course cause you know stress and unhappiness and yeah i feel critical of that i'm with you i'm absolutely with you um i okay i want to move to our last part of the the interview and these are our rapid fire questions and we've asked every guest on the show these questions got some very very interesting answers so i'm very curious to know what your thoughts are karen so the first question is um is there a purchase of $100 or less that has most improved your life in the last six months to a year? It's <laughs> um, a great question. I think, yes, uh, we recently got a bunch of house plants for a very affordable rate. And I would say literally it makes me spend more time in my studio. It makes me feel more connected to nature, even though it's such yes. a simple thing. And it makes me feel alive. Yes. Yeah. And I 100% agree with you. Like, uh, there's something, I, I think the combination of three things. The one is if you have, if you're feeling um, not right and you want to get yourself right for me, it's number one is nature. Number two is mm-hmm. music. And number three is going inward, like meditation or, or, or somewhere else that, that, that you can feel like yourself again. So I, I'm, I'm with you on plants. Just having greenery Definitely. around is, is a huge, huge benefit. Um, 
Cool. The second question I have is um, when you think of a South Asian person you look, you look up to, who would you say comes to mind and why? Mm. Of course, there are so many. Um, I definitely look up to my mom. I, I feel like every time I call her, I just like, feel super empowered. And even my father, like I just had dinner with him last night in Boston. He took a detour so that we could be together. And he's just super um, supportive when it feels really good. I think uh, obviously MIA because MIA doesn't compromise her creativity. Even myself making music videos these days, I, I can see how hard it is to really communicate your own vision to the rest of a larger team. And anytime I've watched an MIA video, it always feels like her through and through. And mm -hmm. I'm noticing how hard that is now that I'm in it myself. And then I think um, DJ Reka because she's always given so much. Um, she's always given so much to her community. She's always like super supportive of the next generation. She's always mentored me and made time for me wherever we are. She introduces me to cool people. She put me on the stage at Central Park Summer Stage. Um, and then I loved her music growing up and her parties. So I think that's uh, those are some of the people who I That's awesome. That's really cool. Um, third question for you, Kieran, is, is there a movie or book that has the most, it has had the most impact on you? that comes to mind um, it can be a book from your childhood or a recent book or a movie anything that has been like oh wow that really spoke to me yeah of course um let me just think there must be so many um i i can't believe i'm saying this but i think the book that recently did speak to me that i read two years ago was eat to live it's just a book about eating super clean, eating vegan, eating raw. Um, I would say I'm vegetarian. It's hard for me to maintain an entirely vegan diet because I travel so much. Um, but I loved reading this book because for the first time, it didn't feel like I was reading some sort of weird diet book. It felt like it was a lot of empowering knowledge on why we have to eat more greens, why we have to eat raw, like how the entire food industry is really designed uh, to make money against us and at our own at the expense of our own health and wellness. And I, that, that book really did change my life. Like I eat so many more greens and raw vegetables than I did before that because I understood from a far more cerebral perspective why that's important. Yes. Eat to live. Yes, I love that. I will, we will link that, that book in our, in our show notes for sure. Um, okay, last few questions. Karen, if, there, if you are speaking to someone in the audience or someone who's listening who's an up-and-coming South Asian person in music or art or creativity or any any in your field, what advice would you give them and why? I think the best advice I can give, and I have to follow this advice myself these days, is like, as you said, to look inward. I think right now we're constantly like flooded with all this Instagram and like media about what everybody else is doing it's really hard to have a voice like every time i scroll and see what other people are doing and instantly all of the work that i did that day feels like it wasn't enough like i'll do the most to get like a whole music video in order or get like all my team in order get the album release in order and then i'll open up my phone and see what a bunch of other folks are doing and immediately feel small you know mm -hmm. and feel unseen or feel insignificant and really like shakes up my whole like positive flow for that day in a negative way. And so I think the best advice I can give is like really make sure to spend time alone because we're not here to compete with other people. We're just here to be the best version of ourselves. We're not here to be 
a second rate version of somebody else. You know, we're here to be the best first rate version of, of us. And so, and that's what the world needs. Like the world just wants you to be the best you. Like that's the people, those are the people who get the most rewarded and sort of uh, energized by those around them. So yeah. I feel look inward in order to serve your purpose outward, know what it is that you're good at, do that thing, do what it is that you think is cool, do what it is that you, that you love that makes you feel happy. Yeah. That makes you want to like do it every day. I love that. And, and, and kind of, uh, to that point, one of the things that you said in one of your videos that I absolutely loved is trust your own intuition and believe in your own ear. I thought that was beautiful because so many people who are in the creative field always have this, you're fighting with your mind to say, Oh, is this good enough? Or will other people like this? But the fact is like, Hey, your, your own creative field is for you and it's your own intuition. It's something for you. So trust it. So I, I love that. What you said. As yeah well. and that goes both definitely that goes both ways because there's definitely songs that i don't like the delivery of it and then everybody else is like oh no it's great it's great it's great but like then it's out and then i have to listen to it every time and i just i'm like why didn't i change it it's wrong like it literally sounds wrong to me so both ways is true even if everybody else tells you they love it but you don't love it make that change yeah that's awesome okay cool um any final ask for the audience? Anything, Kieran, you'd like to leave them with? This has been an incredible, incredible interview, chock full of things that I think are super relevant and valuable to our listeners. But any final ask for the audience? Um, yeah, you know what? I, I would love for more of my South Asian audience to come out to the shows and listen to the music. I think what's interesting is that um, I find myself connecting with so many different audiences and I don't find myself connecting with my own South Asian community in the States to the extent that I'd really love to. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because I live in LA. Um, it's harder. I found it's harder to meet friends who are South Asian identifying in the community sense. I have like so many one-off really badass friends, but it's not an entire community. And so, yeah, I would just invite anyone who's living on the West coast, listening to this podcast, um, to come out, to the tour you know we're going to do a tour first week of december once the album is out stay in touch on instagram and facebook and twitter and all that because that's where i post everything um listen on spotify you know the music is really meant for my friends in the south asian community because that's how i grew up that's what i know um and and listen to visions awesome awesome that is a great way to lead this this podcast thank you so much karen for the time thank you for everything thank you for what you're doing for our community for the world and and you know for for gender equality and i, I just thank can't you. wait I'm, I'm your biggest supporter and we uh we, we i feel love it to, we'd love to uh you know continue the conversation as uh as you as you build more and create more so thank you again thank you so much all right bye Bye. Hey guys, it's Samir again. If you'd like to hear more amazing stories on South Asians around the world, please check out SouthAsianStoriesPodcast.com and subscribe to our email list. That's SouthAsianStoriesPodcast.com. Thanks a lot and see you next time.